Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and today I'm reading from my commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm going to wrap up the book of Revelation today. Let's uh, go to Revelation 21, if you will. Chapter 21. Let's talk more about that new Jerusalem, and then the final comments that the Holy Spirit has for us in the book. 21.9. The view of the city is begun again here close-up fashion, as, as one of the bowl angels invites John now to take a look at the Lamb's wife. We can speculate that it was the seventh angel, the one announcing that final outpouring of wrath, who speaks here and in chapter 17, describing that other city, Babylon. Now here's the last time that the Lamb is mentioned alone in the 32 eternity verses before us. As we view the city of God, we're going to see things that the prophets saw of the millennial period. There are similarities, as the old city was certainly built by the pattern of the heavenly one. One thing true in both eras is the elevation of Zion. Which part of the new earth that this new mountain occupies, we have no idea. Will there be anything similar to a Middle East in the configuration of things here? We don't know. We know there are no seas. Everything is land. And this city is on a mountain. Is it the only mountain? How great and how high is it? Well, the measurements of the city are given below, but the mountain itself, we're not told. And so the city, located all these centuries in heaven, now comes down fully populated by those who escaped the planet's dissolution a short time before. It comes down to nestle into the top of this mountain. We can't even imagine, begin to imagine, how glorious a setting this will be. We know that the present earth can be splendid at times. We know that a new earth must be even more splendid, but add to that the glory of God, and we're out of imaginings. We've just got to wait and see. Regarding light, the clear as crystal light comes from the glory of God and the Lamb. The lighting system of the old planet was a sun and a moon that won't be relevant here. Night and the accompanying time of sleeping will not be needed, for our bodies won't get tired. One eternal day lit by the radiance of the Creator. Regarding the gates of the city, in verses 12 and 13, in the wall that surrounds the square city, Described later, there are twelve gates, three on each wall, guarded by an angel, and named after the twelve tribes of Israel. Remarkably, Ezekiel describes very nearly the same picture in his chapter 48. In his prophecy, he even tells us the name of the tribes. We know his prophecy, however, is from is about the old earth because just before these words is a description of the territory to be allotted to these tribes. These territories, many of which are familiar names to Bible students, probably won't be known on the new earth. In fact, the 32 verses that I allude to as eternity contain only one geographical entity that is familiar, and that is Jerusalem. But note that the pattern of things in heaven has already been on earth a thousand years, And even in our day, there are things going on here in the church that reflect what heaven is like. Two more things about these gates. First, each actual gate, it says, in verse 21, is one huge 
pearl. A pearl of great price. It reminds those who come into and go out of the city of the great price Jesus paid for all of this to be here and for us to be enjoying it. As to the size of this pearl and how it could possibly have come to be, that's another wait and see. Secondly, the gates will be open all day. All day, of course, means eternally, for there is no night there. No need to lock the doors when there's no evil abroad. What about the walls and their foundations? Look at 14 to 20. The apostles will be honored by having their names on the 12 foundations or foundation stones of the surrounding wall. This is not the first time these men have been called foundational. Ephesians 2.20 reminds us of the truth of this fact. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets being the foundation of the spiritual building God is erecting even now. Look at 21.15. Speaks of the bowl angel again and lets us know that it's time to measure the city. A talk like that brings us back once more to Ezekiel in chapter 40. And there, a man, probably also angelic, meets Ezekiel in the land of Israel, though Ezekiel is a prisoner in Babylon. They meet atop a very high mountain, where lies a city. One of the temptation is to jump to the conclusion that Ezekiel and John are speaking of the same thing, but the measurements don't match. And we remember our last encounter with that prophet, whose mission is to see and describe the times and places of the 1,000 years, not eternity. Nevertheless, once more we are impressed with the knowledge that Jerusalem is meant to be the center of God's dealings in every age. What about the measurements? Verses 16 and 17. As stated earlier, the layout of the city is square. The figure 12,000 furlongs that's mentioned, roughly translated 1,400 miles, is given as the size of the city. Now, it would seem that this is the total of all four sides combined, maybe 350 miles on each side, but we're not sure. Uh, From this side of glory, though, a city with a 1,400-mile perimeter is no less glorious to us than one which measures 5,600 miles. Both are incomprehensible. Think of the largest cities of our day with their scant one or two hundred miles around, and the enormity of this place becomes staggering. But wait, did I say it was laid out as a square? I mean, well, I, I was quoting John, well, that is, I was quoting the angel, but another detail is added at the end of 16. Though the bottom of the city is indeed square, its three-dimensional structure actually makes this city a cube. And it says it stretches as far up as it is long and wide. That's already bigger by far than any earthly city that we've ever seen, but God superabundantly places layer upon layer straight up into the new atmosphere, if there is an atmosphere, of this new planet. Our mile-high city of Denver causes shortness of breath among the most hardy. Imagine a 350-mile city, or why not, a 1,400-mile-high city. But imagine it with a new body, easily able to accommodate the breathtaking atmosphere. And of course, imagine while you're at it, as I mentioned, a new atmosphere or no atmosphere. Now comes the measure of the wall. There's at first a similar vagueness as to meaning. It's uh, 216 feet, 144 cubits. 
It can be, the way we first hear it, either the height or the thickness. I suggest thickness. It seems to this earthling unusual to have a mere 200-foot wall enclosing a 350-mile-high metropolis. We can't rule this out. And who are we to call anything heavenly unusual? But it would seem that the thickness of the wall is being discussed here and that therefore the height of the wall is as high as the city. And construction materials, verses 18 to 21. The city and the wall are considered separately when speaking of the materials of which each consists. The walls are of jasper. So again, we observe that the new earth seems to have properties similar to the old one. Jasper is normally an opaque quartz showing up in various colors, green being a more common variety. But from the introduction of the word in 2111, where the light of God is seen as a crystal clear jasper, uh, to this present verse where it's seen in conjunction with a clear gold, we're led to believe that the walls of the New Jerusalem will be nearly clear also, with perhaps a greenish tint to them. The city itself, including every street, verse 21, is pure gold, but also clear. Who can find words to comment on things like this? Foundation stones, 19 and 20, 12 precious stones adorn the foundation stones mentioned above. Uh, Of the 12, eight are readily matched to eight of the stones in the breastplate of the high priest, where also was the name of every tribe. The point being that there is a pattern in heaven again being carried out by God's dealings in this new earth. No temple, verse 22, no temple. God does not dwell in temples made with hands. We were told that all along. And yet a major portion of Ezekiel describes a city just like this one and the specific details of a temple. This can only mean that Ezekiel's temple is meant for that millennial period. But when the full glory of God rests on the planet, throne and all, there will be no temple needed. God will be the temple. Let's talk about traffic in verses 24 to 27. It's nearly shocking to be seeing in this city a continued reference to nations. As stated above, all men in this city are saved men. Their nations, therefore, are saved nations. They shall, it seems, be permitted to populate the earth, though Jesus makes it clear that our present form of populating shall not be a factor there. So how shall we cover the earth for God's glory? That that remains to be seen, along with a host of other things. Somehow, when they have accomplished their various daily tasks, the people will bring the results of their labors back into the city to glorify God and the Lamb with them. Again, sounding a lot like the millennium. Would that we would do all our daily tasks for the same reason now as we prepare for that day. There'll be no evil there. Verse 27 echoes 21.8 and previews 22.15. Constant assurance being given that the former things truly are past. This city is off limits to evil. Evil has been judged forever and is in the lake of fire. Only those in the Lamb's book go in and out of this city. Then there's the natural features. Go on to chapter 22 now with me. The vision continues. Shouldn't be a chapter break here. Now makes us turn back the pages of history all the way to Genesis, where last we saw a river watering a garden and a tree of life. There was only one tree giving life in Genesis, for there were only two people who needed this fruit. 
Here in Revelation, we see trees in the middle of the street and on either side of the river of the water of life. This we've been taking, taken to be symbolic, and for us today, that water is a, a spiritual thing, ministering to our souls. But there, the spiritual body that we will have will need sustenance, and that sustenance is provided in this way. Well, Ezekiel 47 sees much of the same that John sees. But he sees it in a different context. He sees the healing waters, exactly as here. But in 47.8, when the water reaches the sea, its waters are healed. Now, that'll work during the millennium, which is as far as the Old Testament prophets ever saw, I believe, with any detail. But in the New Earth, there are no seas. And also Ezekiel sees that water flowing from under the threshold of the temple. But in the New Jerusalem, there's no temple but God himself. That's why the water in our present chapter proceeds from the throne. In Ezekiel, the trees, like here, are many and are on both sides of the river. I believe that the trees and the water are literal there too, healing the poisonous acids that covered the earth when God's wrath was poured out during the bull judgments. Ezekiel 47 is a fascinating comparison to Revelation 22, but different because in a different era of history. I recommend that all serious students of the prophecies of the Bible spend a lot of time deciphering Ezekiel 40 to 48. Don't write that off. Look at Zechariah. Zechariah completes the prophetic look at living, healing water when he says in chapter 14, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Again, I say here that in the final city and earth, there are no seas. Ezekiel and Zechariah speak of millennial days, but they speak of the realities of their holy city, a place very much like the one that we're now studying. How about the healing of the nations, 22.2? It was Ezekiel who first said it in 47.12 of his prophecy, the leaves will be for medicine. The nations before us, recall, are comprised of the saved of all times. There is no pain in the new earth, no sickness, no sin, no curse. Why then a need for healing? Well, I speculate, but based on what we know so far, perhaps this medicine is the reason for continued health, a part of the diet of the new world order. Or, Or this could refer to the fact that there are certain aspects of their life in the old planet that still need dealt with as they adjust to the new. Uh, see above comments on 21.4 about the wiping away of tears. I believe there's a connection between their need for comfort and their need for healing, at least initially. Remember there, it was quite a trauma at the very end of the millennium. No curse, 22.3. One thing is certain, whatever men inherited initially from Adam, it's gone. Sin, sickness, Problems of the fallen nature, all done away forever by the Spirit's work in them. All that is left is perfect service to a perfect God, given cheerfully and effectively. And what could God possibly need in terms of service in that day? What are these people who come in and out of the city doing in the new world? Well, come and see. Uh, Verses 3 to 5. The final promises of eternity have to do with the intimate relationship God will have with his people. They will wear his name 
As the followers of the Antichrist wore that blasphemous name, they will actually see his face and not die. The strangest part of it all to me is that everything is still on the planet, though a new planet. Oh, how God has set his love on us. Jesus is giving the kingdom to the Father, not destroying it after the 1,000 years. New earth shall be our headquarters forever, or so it seems. The Father's very throne shall be there. Nations will continue to operate from here. What joys await us? I just don't know what else to say. The Bible concludes its 32-verse description of eternity at 22.5. After that, there are directions, warnings, and invitations. John misunderstands again in verses 6 to 9. Bit of confusion in the following conversation that the enemies of Christ again have jumped on to make one last biblical effort to strip from Jesus his deity. Recall our earlier discussion of how this book came to be. It was from father to son to angel to John. In this final word, an angel is talking. The he of verse 6 refers back to the he of 22.1 and 21.15. Finally, all the way back to 21.9, where we're reintroduced to that bold angel. Though it is the angel's voice that John hears, and the person of an angel, of course, is standing right there, it's the very words of Jesus being spoken through that angel. John mistakes one for the other, as many readers have done, as you would, as I would. He begins to give credit to the angel for what is really the message of Jesus. And once more, as in 1910, he begins to worship. In his rebuke to John, it is noteworthy to see angelic self-concept. He says, I'm just a servant like you. And second, I'm obeying the words of this book, like Jesus is calling you to do. Jesus, through the angel reminds John of how the message came to him and of the immediacy of the wrap-up of all things. The nearness of the coming of Jesus is emphasized in four verses, five verses. One moment he will not be here, the next moment he will be here. No gradual evolution of his presence, no process. When he comes, he comes quickly. Be ready. Obey this prophecy, verse 7. We're, we're back at the beginning of the book where this same command is given in one three. Yes, much of the prophecy is symbolic and prophetic, therefore future, but sprinkled heavily throughout the scroll are commands to obey, visions to cherish, warnings to observe, exhortations to cling to Christ and watch for His quick return. The saint of God is called to believe very incredible things. There's a constant call to worship. A person who can keep all of this will be a blessed one. Now here's some directions to John. Don't seal this book, verse 10. After the previously described worship incident, John is given a word that contrasts with that which was given to his counterpart, Daniel. That prophet was told at the end of his revelation, the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Well, this present angel tells John, do not seal these words. That must mean we are living in the days that Daniel saw, the days of the Son of Man. And if it doesn't seem that Jesus has come soon enough back to earth, we must learn to see these days as God sees them. 
In his eyes, Peter tells us, a thousand-year wait is like a day. Peter also reminds us that, that scoffers are going to laugh at such logic. That lets us know that the time was to be long from the beginning. We live in the age of grace, and God has always desired to extend that grace to as many as will hear. Grace and the glory of God keep us from that closing bell, but it will come. And the time, in one sense, is always at hand. The world always is ready to be judged, or so it seems. Antichrists abound, and Babylon surrounds us in every generation. Watch and pray. Well, the end of God's mercy is verse 11. This verse is written for those living just before Jesus' return, as the spirit inside John was indicating was very near. It's the end of God's mercy and invitation. It's a locking in of the position of the soul for all time. It's a sad verse for many. I come quickly. Verses 7 and 10 and 12 and 20. And I bring a reward with me. As the resurrected damned are given what their evil works demand, so the participants in the first resurrection will be given rewards for their good works. They are already saved, chosen people. They have received eternal life as a gift by grace through faith. Now the Lord lets them see how he appreciated what they did in his name. Note the similarity to Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And then in verse 13, Jesus identifies himself again. This part of the message is in chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 17. Originally in Isaiah 41, 4, I am the Lord, I the Lord am the first, and with the last I am he. And then a blessing in verse 14. Now there seems to be a major disagreement in the textual evidence when it comes to the blessing of verse 14. The King James, usually the most trustworthy rendition because of the Greek text it follows, talks here about doing his commandments to gain right to the tree of life. Most modern translations have followed another Greek text. Now, I'm going to spare you the details of this whole study of textual criticism, although it's an important study, valid, needed work among us. But this other text reads that persons must wash their robes to have that right. I'm going to hold to the, to the King James, but I must add that there is no way that a man can keep the commandments without washing his robes in the blood of Jesus. It's, the only, it's only that new life that flows from God that conforms a man to the image of his son. And perhaps it was this knowledge that caused an erstwhile copyist to add a comment to the text. Later, I speculate, of course, that comment was included erroneously. Don't know, but you won't get to heaven by your works. You will wash your robes, though. You will get saved, and when you get saved, you'll work. (laughs) And those works will get you right where you need to be. The cursed, verse 15, John here backs up historically to describe the days of the millennium and even our day when those who are truly gods are safe within the commonwealth of Israel. In the eternal city, the only evil people outside will be the ones in the lake of fire. Here they still seem to be a threat to persons moving in and out of the city. The point is easily taken, though, that the righteous have access to the heavenly privileges and the ungodly do not, wherever they are. The signature of Jesus in verse 16. No question, 
No question whose words are being spoken here. But I still maintain that they are coming through the angel's mouth, for there's been no indication otherwise. With these words, Jesus brings us back to the current situation in the churches of Asia, and thus all churches of all times. This book is for them, and he wants them to know of his worthiness to be heard. Humanly speaking, Jesus comes from the line of David. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the Son of Man. But being the bright and morning star, he relates to that which is heavenly too. The prophecy in Numbers 24 and his own imagery early in the book about stars being the messengers of God are recalled by his comment. He's not a created spirit, but truly he is the spirit whose brightness is eternal. Invitation, verse 17, this is the very word of Jesus, not a commentary by John. Jesus speaks directly to the human heart here, hands outstretched as when he was on the earth saying, Come to me, all you that labor. Never did he desire that man be lost. He will do everything in his mighty power to call men to himself. When we are fully yielded to him, inviting people to Jesus is what our life is about too. Verses 18 and 19, do not tamper with this prophecy. The final warning, add to the revelation, the plagues will be added to you. Subtract from the revelation and the blessings will be subtracted from you. Some conclude that because revelation is placed at the end of the Bible, this warning can apply to all 66 books. It is indeed a fearful thing to be caught tampering with what God has said. From the beginning, God warned his people about this. In Deuteronomy 4 and 12, strictly commands Israel, while they're still in the wilderness, never to add or subtract from the words given by God. And then the end, verses 20 and 21. One more assurance that Jesus is coming quickly, at least by heaven's standards, and the work is finished. John gives the amen. So be it, Lord. Come. Then the beloved apostle adds his apostolic blessing. And like Daniel, and like us, he goes his way to wait on all these things to be fulfilled. And so, I must go my way also. With limited vision, I've shared with you what I was able to see of the coming events of Earth's history. This work has been one of discovery, not creation. There's no new revelations from God in here, from me, about our future though I was certainly able to find things I hadn't found before in this book. Those who claim to have new information must be viewed with suspicion immediately and often. I've been especially nervous listening to or even reading books about persons who allegedly have died and returned to tell us what they saw in heaven. Often they add material to the book of Revelation, and I cannot see how that that is not in defiance of the final warning of the book. No, our job is like Josiah's. After having been given a copy of the scriptures, we read it, we discover its truths or rediscover them, we repent because of what we read, and we tell others what we have read. No need for novel information. The 66 books are sufficient, and of all God's books, Revelation, when discovered, puts a man in touch with the reality of God and the horrible condition of humanity and one's own self. That's a sure formula for repentance. 
May God bring these revelations and realizations to his people. And may he use this labor of my hands to help along the pathway. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here all these times. I'm assuming that you, you, you were here the whole time. Nobody, I hope, would just come to this last audio and try to understand. Now, you've got to go back to the beginning if you haven't. Um, if you want to download this, uh, this book on your computer and just read it there, the book itself, um, you, there's a PDF available at the first two audios. I'm not allowed, I wasn't allowed to put it all in one because it was too big of a PDF. But if you'll go to the first audio and then the second audio, you'll see there are PDFs that are available. Click on them and read them. If you've got a lot of paper and ink, you can print them out too. It's 160-some pages. And, of course, the simplest way is just to go to Amazon.com and purchase a copy from there. It's only $7. I was thinking about a video series. I'm not so sure as I come to the end here that I will do a video series like this. But I will be putting videos over there at YouTube to, to tell them about this uh, so that they can come here and learn it for themselves. This is a message, as I've said many times, I'm very intent on disseminating to the people of God as we move into times that look more and more like the times that are predicted here. This is the Hackberry House of Chosen, and Lord willing, we'll talk again, hopefully real soon. Bye-bye.